Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, baby, that brown liquor make my heart go quicker. Welcome to the Leisure Class. I'm your host, Jack Song. A podcast dedicated to turning you on to the good stuff. A gathering place for the many kindred spirits I am grateful to call friends. Musicians, writers, artists, chefs, cocktail wizards, and wine geeks. All members of the leisure class. Greetings, beautiful people, and welcome to the Leisure Class, Episode 2, yeah, that's right. Influences and Inspirations. I'm going to have a guest join us in a while, one of the great, great guitar players and a dear friend, Eddie Martinez. I'll tell you more about him a little bit later. You know, I'm sure most of us at one point in our lives have sat with friends after a fine dinner and some tasty adult beverages and played some kind of parlor game variation of What's your top five albums, artists, your desert island discs, your last meal menu, places to visit, that dead or alive dinner guest game? We play these games as conversation starters, but they serve a greater purpose, really. The choices we make on all of these little games reveal a lot about who we are as people, what is important to us, and what and who has influenced and inspired us in our lives. The version of this game that I play with friends and members of the leisure class is I and I, Influences and Inspirations. I'm always interested in hearing from artists of all disciplines who and what ignited their passion and helped set them on their path. You know, we're all a result of the influences and inspirations we've experienced. And the wonderful thing about this is that these things become integrated and shape us as unique individuals. As influenced as my guitar playing was by Jimi Hendrix, no matter how much he inspired me as an artist, I will never be him, obviously. But I absorbed what he gave me and created something of my own from it. Now, I am never going to compare myself to the great Jimi Hendrix, but I think you all know what I mean. There's a saying most of us have heard, that good artists borrow, great ones steal. It took me a while to really understand what that means, and this is my interpretation of it. When we borrow something, it does not belong to us. The accepted norm in borrowing is the agreement that what we borrow will be returned to the rightful owner. If you're my neighbor and I borrow a cup of sugar, the contract is I'll replace it. But when we steal something, it becomes ours. We own it. In thinking about the arts, What influences and inspires us is absorbed into our being and turns into something uniquely ours. Now, you may dress, talk, act, even copy all of his guitar licks, but you will never, ever be Prince. And part of Prince's genius was he absorbed all of his influences and inspirations. 
James Brown, Sly Stone, Jimi Hendrix, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, even Joni Mitchell, and created his very own unique style and persona. Another great artist who did the same is Stevie Ray Vaughan. He wore his influences and inspirations on his sleeve, and perhaps more accurately, his fretboard. But Stevie drew on these, at times in very obvious ways. But as time went on, these influences became less apparent, and his own style emerged. And he remains one of the most unique electric guitar players ever. So don't borrow, my friends. Steal. The more influences and inspirations you absorb, the deeper your resources and the more unique you become as an artist and a human being. So coming up, my guest today is one of the most accomplished and talented guitar players that I know. I know that you've heard his work on many albums. You may not know his name, which is Eddie Martinez, but you've certainly heard his guitar playing. He has played with some of the greatest names in rock and roll. Mick Jagger, Tina Turner, Robert Palmer. He's all over that track, Addicted to Love. So when we come back, talk to Eddie about the difference between being a session guitar player and a performing guitar player touring with a live band. That's his music playing in the background because he's a fantastic solo artist as well. We'll be right back with Eddie Martinez. I'm Jack Sonny. This is The Leisure Class, brought to you by Newsweek. Welcome back to The Leisure Class. I'm Jack Sonny. Today's guest is one of my favorite people on the planet, a guitarist who has influenced me in so many ways. Eddie Martinez, whose music you're hearing in the background right now. And you may not recognize this song, but I know that you've heard him play on a dozen, maybe more albums in your collection. Eddie is a guitar player's guitarist. He grew up in New York City, surrounded by an amazing crazy range of influences and inspirations and he absorbed it all to create a signature guitar style that has set him apart from so many other guitar players he's best known for this recording of robert palmer's addicted to love and his appearance on that album he has played with mick jagger tina turner rod stewart david lee roth lou reed meatloaf funk and soul artists like Patti LaBelle, Chaka Khan, Nona Hendrix, they have all called on Eddie to bring his unique style to their recordings. His blistering lead work and his heavy riffs on Run DMC tracks, Rockbox, and King of Rock, man, just helped pioneer hip-hop artists to break through on MTV and blur the lines between rock and hip-hop. Eddie, great to see you, man. Great to see you too, Jack. Welcome to doing? the Leisure Class. <laughs> yeah, man. As <laughs> all these years that I've known you, and we've reconnected and talked once in a while, and you know, obviously, I was aware of so many of the artists that you played with. You know, the high-profile stuff that I knew of. And, mm-hmm. But when I went to check your AllMusic.com credits for your sessions, 
man, it was mind blowing. I oh. had honestly, man, I had no idea. It goes on for pages, pages and pages. It reads like a who's who of popular music. Thanks, man. It's uh, when you're in the moment, you're not thinking about it. You're just thinking about, I mean, you know what it's like living in New York and you're, you know, just trying to get work as a young kid and just trying to get into the studio scene was something that after I did my share of touring, you know, cause I toured with, you know, with LaBelle. I toured with uh, some other artists. I also toured with Blondie, Lenny White, Stanley Clark, George Duke. And so it was really kind of an eclectic uh, array of people. And I got to the point where, uh, you know, it's just, okay, the touring thing is really cool. Um, but I really wanted to focus on recording. I really wanted to, Crack that code, man. I wanted to get the freaking Rosetta Stone for what it's like to be hooked up in the recording studio or at least known or be, you know, be seen and be heard. And um, so I was fortunate. I was fortunate. But, you know, it's like you have to you have to have a real kind of a mindset and uh, you, you have to really project on the ideal and you need to be relentless. You need to be really focused. And I think I was really determined you know, at, at that age, you know, it was really, I, I just, I had to do it. I just really, I had to take the dive. Fantastic. Well, it certainly worked out. You're saying you started as a young kid and you were touring like with LaBelle and all these people. And the other day you were telling me a story. I think you said you were 16 out in LA. So like, when did, when did it start for you? Oh, uh, the Beatles, you know, okay. the Beatles. I saw them on that Sunday night in 64. And um, it was like a seismic kind of big bang for me, you know. But in my household, there was always a lot of music. And albeit I was the Beatle file, you know what I mean? I was the, you know, I had my Beatles stuff. And then my cousin came over with Disraeli Gears and Whiter Shade of Pale and Are You Experienced? And as I say, man, like a little, my, the top of my head was like a, like a, like a jar that opened up. <laughs> And it just, all these other elements just came like floating in. And it was like really an amazing moment. But what was interesting about my household was that, you know, this is like 60s, in the 60s in the Bronx, in the South Bronx. And uh, there was a lot of Latin music in my house. My father loved the, the greats. And that was such an incredible era for, for Latin music. It's really considered the golden era. You know, it was when it was, when it was called, you know, Latin music as opposed right. to a condiment salsa, you know, I, I don't get it. That's still kind of like it does a does a thing to me. But, you know, Tito Rodriguez, Tito Puente, mm. uh, Machito, uh, Eddie Palmieri, all these great, great bands, just amazing musicians. That was kind of an omnipresent in the house. And then my older brother, Carlos, uh, and my uh, older brother, Ismael, they had a really eclectic tastes. My brother, Ismael, we used to call him Ish, you know, mm -hmm. and Ish used to listen to, I mean, he was a James Brown nuts. It was plenty of James Brown, a lot of funk, a lot of Motown. And my older brother, Carlos, would listen to the Latin music as well, but he also had, I mean, Stan Getz, uh, Miles Davis, Sketches of Spain, uh, Sun Ra, Bob Dylan, you know, really eclectic stuff. So I was listening to, you know, to all of that, as well as the Beatles and stuff. I just kept my Beatles records to myself and I made sure that they were pristine and impeccable <laughs> while those other things got scratches, man. I had like, I was, I was, I was, I was cuckoo about that shit. You know, that brings me to pretty much the a real subject for this episode today, which is uh, influences and inspirations. 
what were the first things that I heard and as, as a child? A couple of pieces of music, actually a few pieces of music come to mind. Um, uh, Neblu de Pinti de Blue Volare by Domenico um, Modugno, I think his name is, right? Uh, man, that melody, before I even knew how to play an instrument or knew anything about music, I, I, I instinctively felt uh, if things were harmonically complex or harmonically, you know, consonant rather, and things that were kind of like a little bit more complex. And, and I remember hearing that stuff and, and, and I was fascinated with it. I was, and then there was uh, Joe Stafford, You Belong to Me. I remember my uncle playing that when we would go to visit my uncle, you know, see them pyramids along Nile. You know, I mean, it's like, and that shit just sent me. I was just like, all of a sudden, man, I'm, I'm in Egypt. You know what I mean? It's like, so it really had an impact on me. And then I remember this had to have been, oh man, this was on American Bandstand and I saw Jerry Lee Lewis play Great Balls of Fire. And that was like, what the, that shit was crazy, man. And it was like, I loved it because it was, it was reckless. It had a sense of urgency and there was an energy that transcended what was happening musically, which is, you know, that's, 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 you know, to me, that's what rock and roll is. It just projects something that's transcendent. It's a little bit different than it isn't what it is. It's like something magical happens right, that it becomes right. more. I think we'll jump into that in the second segment. Cause I got a question for you along those lines. Okay. But, um, let's talk about your guitar influences and inspirations. Who are the cats besides John Lennon and you know, what yeah. got you moving after that? Uh, you know, I was always, uh, Hendrix, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, and I loved Pete Townsend too. I think what Pete Townsend was doing was really, you know, it was different. Uh, it was, it was, it was so powerful, but in a different way. And it was more, um, it was more song structured, but it was enormous. And there was an energy to it that really, you know, that I, I that uh, that hit me. You listen to live at Leeds, and there's man, it's just the sound is like just killing. So I related to that. Loved Mountain. Mountain. I saw them. I saw them so many times in New York at the Fillmore, at the Capitol Theater in Porchester. Saw them in Jersey too. I saw them in Central Park. I mean, they were fun. They were big and rambunctious, and you know, Leslie with those big tones and Papillardi holding the bass, and you know, down and great and my first concert was hendrix you know wow uh, all my best buds had gotten to see jimmy like maybe six months earlier when he played the fillmore east and uh i couldn't afford the ticket you know even those tickets were probably about 350 man but you know i came from humble beginnings you know and i really had to save up my money to get the ticket to see hendrix at the singer bowl um uh, later that year but they were raving about hendrix I think Sly Stone was on the bill. Sly opened up the show and Jimmy closed it. And they said it was the most incredible concert they had ever been to. And that you, you just have to see Hendrix. So I, uh, I made a point of getting a ticket for that show. Went by myself because they weren't available to go. So I just schlepped all the way from the Bronx all the way out to, to Queens, to Flushing, Queens, like where the, where the, uh, um, the World's Fair had uh, been like in the earlier part of the 60s and uh, got to see Hendrix and uh, it was just amazing it was it was so incredible and everybody on the bill was amazing from the soft machine to Chambers Brothers to Janis Joplin and Hendrix and it was a it was a really incredible incredible 
uh, experience. No pun intended. Well, that's the amazing part about those first experiences. I often think how different maybe your course would have been had that not been your first experience, right? Like, yeah. And the fact that you were into loud guitar players, man. I mean, yeah, there was, was no but, doubt. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of incongruous to my cultural paradigm, uh, for lack mm -hmm. of a better phrase, or or the neighborhood that I came from. Because, I mean, the first band that I was in wasn't in my neighborhood. I, you know, it, had, it was a long walk or a bus ride. And it was where cats that were into what I was listening to, and we were listening to everything. So we had a top 40 band, so we weren't doing anything particularly heavy, but uh, we were just, you know, it was just to, to, to get, uh, get a leg in, you know what I mean, in, into the music scene. But yeah, it was totally incongruous to what was going on in my neck of the woods, I mean, cause it was like, you know, cats are playing stickball and, or they're selling drugs on the corner and shit, you know, or right. some of the elders are playing dominoes with a, with a cold one in a paper bag, you know, that kind of thing. Luckily, I found a few friends in, in high school. That was enormous for me. That was enormous for me, to, you know, to find like-minded like people. And and people of color too, you know. When I think about it, because we, we were we were kind of this, it was kind of like a psychedelic Puerto Rican, you know. What I mean? It's kind of like yeah. I want to play a game with you because looking at your resume or your credits over the years, and all the people that you've played with, all the people that you've toured with, I want to play a different version of the Kevin Bacon game. Okay, you know, you're probably when I'm thinking about it, one degree of separation from just about anybody who's played music. You played with Clapton. Right. Yep. So you're one degree of separation from Jimi Hendrix, right? Yeah. I'm going to toss out a couple of names. Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel. Oh, we opened up for Peter Gabriel with Nona Hendrix. And uh, so first I met Jerry Murata. First time I okay. met Ed McGinnis. First time I met Tony Levin. And the first time I met Todd Cochran, who's playing keys. And the first time right. I met Peter <laughs> as well. But yeah. Okay. Incredible. Incredible. Okay, uh, Prince. Prince, wow. Uh, I saw Prince in 79 or 80, I think it was. We, we were on the same bill with him and Rick James. Rick James was the headliner. Prince was second bill, and I was with Lenny White in 29, and we opened up that. And uh, at Soundcheck, I heard Prince, and it just blew my freaking mind. And it was like, I, I felt that it was, I, I, it just, I, there was something about it. It was the package. It was the whole thing. It was the whole, it was the whole presentation. It was how, how well rehearsed they were. They hit that stage at Soundcheck, not even in their gig clothes, but it looked like gig clothes, man, because it was like, they were, they were, let me tell you, they were flexing, man. They were flexing. It was real. And they were serious. We kicked some butt too. So they'd be checking us out in the wings while we were doing 12 bars from Mars and all these kind of fusion-y kind of things with Lenny. And conversely, um, we'd be checking them out because they were doing, you know, stuff off the first and second album. I think the second album had I Want to Be Your Lover, the first one being Wet, but they were doing mostly songs off of that second album, which most people see as the first album, I believe. So we toured for, I don't know, a good five, six weeks, all throughout the South and Midwest, I believe. And it was a great experience. It really was amazing. Did you get a chance to jam with him at all or play with him? or? No, but uh, actually it was so interesting at Soundcheck. He asked to meet me, and I was, man, what is, what is this cat? You know, I mean, I, I don't know him. He was very familiar with uh, the work that I'd done with Nona, and um, he was familiar with my work. So I wow. was, needless to say, I was flattered. 
But when I think about playing with heroes, like say Clapton and with Jeff Beck and recording with them, some people will say, well, my God, you played with one of, you know, one of the greatest cats of all time. And yes, yes, but I have to compartmentalize that shit and put it in like way out in deep center field of my mind. And I just have to really get into the, the aspect of I'm a session guy. How do I serve the song? And serving the song is the most important thing when you're in a session. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, man, I love what, what all these great players did, you know, but serving the song is the most important thing. So for me, it was really coming up with parts that really right. helped the track. And Cunning with Sly and, and, and Robbie, too, um, was really a lot of fun. And as soon as I got down to the Bahamas to record with Jeff and stuff like that, we started, the tracks just started flowing and they were keepers. So uh, that made me feel good. You're listening to The Leisure Class. I'm Jack Sonny. Don't go anywhere. We're going to continue my conversation with friend guitarist Eddie Martinez after we take a breather. Hey, welcome back to The Leisure Class. We're going to continue our conversation with the great guitarist, Eddie Martinez. You have your stage chops together and then you have recording chops because it's a different way of approaching music and recording than, than, than performing to a large degree because you're working with a variety of artists and a, a variety of styles. It's a different muscle, so to speak. But I've been so fortunate that I've, I've been able to like really play such diverse styles of music I'm versatile in that regard, but when I hit the stage, I, I really want it to be kind of frontal guitar. You know what I mean? Uh, that's that's where that's where I'm most at home. Where you know your you, where your job is to like make the guitar be bigger than life itself, and and uh, and have it have that impact. And so I love that that I've been able to really work on both of those different sides because they're they're vastly different. And there's nothing more fun than actually recording stuff that's big and crunchy and stuff, you know. And uh, it, it goes into the aspect of being a studio musician because there's a lot of magic that is being done that is behind the, the musical scene. There's stuff, I call it the inside shit. If you're doing like a little shang-a-lang part, man, can you make that hi-hat swing on the drums? It makes the, the whole track feel good. It's those things that you do that make the music feel good, even though it isn't frontal. So... I respect all aspects of, of the magic of making music because it really is. a stuff that you're doing that's obvious and it's, you know, impactful. And there's other stuff that's really demure and it's in the back of it, but it's making what's happening, it's making everything else that is happening feel even better. And um, that's that inside shit, which I love to do too, because there's certain tracks that you're just playing, you know, and then they tuck that back and you know it starts doing this little dance with the hi-hat and then everybody's happy because the track is swinging and people are dancing and if that particular part isn't there it's not the same correct you know one of the things Eddie, about the fact that you came up with such uh in such a varied background and have experience in all these different styles you would still and be able to go into the studio and reach into this amazing Captain Kangaroo pocket of all these different musical tricks, musical riffs, just, you know, a knowledge 
and experience with all these different things go on stage and there is no doubt that it's you you have taken all these influences and inspirations and it's like oh that's eddie martinez it's not just anybody (laughs) that's eddie martinez kicking it you know oh thank you that means a lot to me because you know it's like you know sometimes you feel like you're such a chameleon that maybe you don't have a definitive voice you know what i mean and uh mm-hmm. that's that's such a wonderful compliment thank you really appreciate that comes from the heart man and it's real you know i mean as we've talked we've never had the opportunity unfortunately to ever really play together and or maybe in the store a couple of times yeah i think that there. yeah exactly but in terms of you know it as i've told you many times it was always one of my fantasy bands that I would be the rhythm guitar player while you played lead. I'd be Keith to your Mick Taylor. <laughs> and I would be very, very happy doing that. Having had the sort of incredibly deep and varied background that you have of influences and inspirations and worked through all of these different, you know, sort of genres, just adds to this palette that you're able to draw on to bring something that is unique because another player hasn't had that experience. And it's the same thing for me when people ask about why the Beatles are so great as songwriters, it's because they spent years playing other stuff, playing standards, playing rock and roll, playing country, playing all these. So when they were writing their own music, they were able to have a point of reference and say, oh, uh, we need to do a Smokey Robinson thing here. Yeah. But it wouldn't wouldn't come out like Smokey. It would come out like the Beatles. Yeah, that's that's the thing about you know it's like listen to I, I listen to everything, Jack. I mean, man, I I mean I love I love film music. I'm big into film music, um, but I listen to the standards a lot. I listen to Sinatra. I listen to Tony Bennett. I listen to Nat Cole, Billie Holiday. Uh, you know, I mean, all, all the greats, Joe Williams. I mean, it's like these songs are like coming close to a century in terms of how old they are. You know, but Gershwin and Rogers and Hart and Cole Porter and Howard Arlen and these masters of you know billy strayhorn you know and all the stuff that that he he didn't arrange for duke ellington it's good to listen because it's good music you know coltrane said only two kinds of music good and bad i don't give a if it's you know hank williams you know it's like hank williams is cool charlie pride is cool all that shit is cool vince gill is great oh man you have to take all this stuff in man it's just like it's good yep absolutely man and you know, listening to your solo stuff. The thing that surprised me and delighted me was, man, you sing great. <laughs> you know, it was like, I was not expecting, I don't know why I should, would think otherwise, but well, I know, just didn't know that was in your, your thing. <laughs> I sang before I actually played in, in the first bands that I was in. And the only reason I started playing, I, I, I did start on acoustic guitar, but that wasn't with the band, you know, mm-hmm. and I was just fronting the band singing. Because I, I was a full tenor in those days, man, and I, I can hit the high notes, and and then the bass player split. So all of a sudden, man, you, you have some knowledge of guitar, fucking play the bass. So then I played <laughs> the bass, and then one day the drummer, uh, Warren Warren Cohen is his name, and he lives in Florida. He's still a friend. He says, "Hey, let's switch instruments for a minute." So Danny, Danny the guitarist, he says, "Hey, why don't you switch, Danny? Let Eddie play guitar." And, and Danny, you play bass. And I started playing. And then Warren said, he said to me, Eddie, if you don't continue on guitar, you're out of your mind. And that's I, that was a real seminal moment that I, I really started taking the instrument 
uh, the six strings as seriously as I was the four strings. You know, my younger brother, Roberto, uh, was given a plastic guitar for Christmas and he didn't, he didn't play it. So I started, I started messing around and this thing it was plastic. It had six strings, I think, and each string had a different color. And, you know, it's like I started noodling around on this thing and, and, uh, and my father noticed that I, you know, I was really taking an interest in it, you know, and I asked him, you know, if he, he would be able to get me a guitar. So he saved up his money. It took me, it took a while. It took a while, but he saved up his shackles and got me a, um, an acoustic guitar that I played till it literally fell apart. The, 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 the bridge came up off the body and I had to use some string to hold that thing down. But I played that until it literally fell apart. Then he got me my first electric guitar which was a Gretsch Corvette. It had a tremolo and it was a inexpensive Gretsch models. It was solid body. It was a, like a burgundy color. And I had that and a deluxe reverb, a black, black panel deluxe, which man, that guitar, that, that amp now is worth a pretty penny. And, um, and that was the beginning for me. And then from then on, I was on my own with guitars and that was important, man. It was important. They, they believed in me. They never judged me for just like, what else are you going to do for a living? You know, it was never, that was never asked of me. They just uh, supported me wholeheartedly. They let me do gigs when I was 16, coming home at 2.30 in the morning, 2.45 in the morning after doing like six sets a night, you know, getting up and going to school. They were special. They were special in allowing that freedom. And that was Eddie Martinez. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about Eddie's influences and inspirations and his life as a session and touring guitarist. You know, with the exception of our theme today, all the music in this episode are Eddie's original compositions. You can find his solo recordings on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, and CD Baby. It's the good stuff for sure. Coming up next, our segment called Shake It Up with my buddy Brad behind the bar. Today we're going to be talking about a cocktail that... He and I created called the El Abuelo and a variation La Abuela. If you dig tequila, don't go anywhere. it's time for the segment we call Shake It Up, our deep dive into the science, inspiration, and artistry in the making of creative craft cocktails. My co-host is Brad Johnson, a musician friend of mine with a shared passion for the good stuff, and who is a cocktail wizard, a true star behind the bar. So Brad, you know, today's episode is really sort of centered around this idea of influences and inspirations. And one of the things that I've loved about you know, getting together with you and sort of riffing on cocktails, I'm able to rely on your incredibly deep knowledge of cocktails and just sort of thank you throw. Yeah, man. I mean, you're the maestro and be able to like throw out ideas. Um, and you are able to like sort of go, well, that'll work. That won't work and everything. So this particular right. cocktail that we're talking about tonight that, that we created and has been received nicely by the folks that have tried it there are two there are two one is a variation of the original the el abuelo as we've called it came about while you and i were sort of 
talking about winter cocktails, bourbon, Añejo tequilas, some of the brown liquors, then sort of started riffing on Aztec chocolate coffee drinks. Yeah, because you you were you were wanting something that was kind of a, a a chest warmer sitting around the fire, and you know I'd thrown out you know a variation of an old fashioned, and then we started playing around with base spirits, and and uh, you came up with the the Mexican chocolate piece. But you know it's always great to do, like you know we're riffing, you know throwing out ideas and 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 using a classic like an old fashioned. Like what what better platform to riff on because it's it's. It's essentially three ingredients, four if you count the orange zest or right. fruit zest that you would, you know, squirt over the top and uh, maybe rub around the rim. You know, that could be your fourth ingredient because that does alter the the flavor profile of the cocktail, which I love. Absolutely. Right? Right. Well, that's, you know, the thing about each one of those elements, right, that add to the experience. It's no different than, than music. It's no different than food. Each element contributes to the whole. And the old-fashioned, I mean, this is a classic cocktail, right? Everyone yep. should be able to make a great old-fashioned. Three ounces of bourbon, about half ounce of demerara or, or any kind of simple syrup. Depending, you could go less if you want to, if you don't want it that sweet, or or you could go a little more if you like it sweeter, your choice. And then three three to four dashes of bitters, Stir it, pour it over ice, and then lemon zest or, uh, or orange zest, and bam, you're done. Like you're that's done. A, that's classic. Right? I like I like and the you fact could riff on that. Yeah, I like the fact that you put three ounces in there. That was that's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, <come> <laughs> you know, I'm always like looking at the recipes for so many of these drinks. It's like one and a half ounces of booze. It's like really, like, <laughs> but it's all right. about trying to find the balance. There are variations on that classic old-fashioned right you're going to get mashed you know um orange and cherry in their muddled muddled uh fruit and some people yeah. take offense to that but you know it can some make a great do. it yeah. can make a great addition to the cocktail and brings out yeah. some of the flavors in the bourbon this was the thing that i Agreed. one of the things that i learned with uh winemakers and folks that are wine geeks it was this whole idea of Echo and contrast, right? Yes. So yeah. that you're finding elements in each one of these things that give a highlight to what's already there or a contrast to it that really sets it apart so that that flavor profile stands out. Right, yeah. And then you could find, find binding flavor profiles in between those two that kind of bridge the gap. You know, I've I've played around with ginger and cantaloupe, which um, on the surface you'd think, well, that doesn't sound very appetizing. It actually works really well together. But then I added in matcha and because the creaminess of the matcha and the cantaloupe that kind of bound together then the matcha and the ginger, there was like a bridge between it. So it's like you, you start reaching out there into these flavor profiles and you're finding little accents and yeah, combinations it, that work well together. And, and you could really come up with some creative ideas. You know, one of the things that recently I just sort of discovered the accent of lemon in bourbon, which, which really, you know, surprised me, but it works really well. It brightens it up and, and adds this sort of 
edge to to this sort of rounded liquor. That's the discovery process, and th- th- it was so much fun to like riff on this thing, the El Abuelo. Yeah. So so what we landed on with El Abuelo was one and a half ounces of añejo tequila, one and a half ounces of mezcal, a half ounce of spiced Mexican chocolate syrup, which, you know, you and I have made variations of that ourselves. We'll get into that in a second. And then three to four dashes of, you know, Mexican chocolate bitters. And there's a ton of them out on the market. Fee Brothers and Hella, they make some great stuff, but choose your own. And depending on how much bitters you like, and and you and I had messed around with orange, but we landed on the flaming uh, grapefruit peel, which... I love I love the numbing factor of of that grapefruit oil. You know how it kind of numbs your your mm-hmm. tongue and your lips. It really to me it just matches up well with the cayenne pepper that we put into the Mexican chocolate syrup and the smokiness of the mezcal. I mean it was really balanced and and just mm, ah, delicious. And of course citrus and the chocolate elements. Right, that was just so good. Well, so one of the, good. one of the things that I that I discovered early on with tequila is that, you know, so many people do lime, right? That, that, that was the ritual, right? You do tequila and the salt and the lime thing. At some point I got turned on to, and this was probably two different places. One was while I was in Mexico, chilled slices of ruby red grapefruit along Mm -hmm. with a shot Mm -hmm. of tequila, uh, usually Blanco, and it is a remarkable combination. It really does sort of open up a lot of the flavors that are are inherent in a good tequila. Um, yeah. So that grapefruit element is something that I've included in my margarita mixes. You know, when I do a margarita, it's tequila, orange liqueur, lime juice, and grapefruit right. juice. And it's yeah. just sort of broadens it out in this uh really wonderful wonderful uh flavor profile yeah you and i are in lockstep on the ruby reds man (laughs) i always have grapefruit handy in the house because there is so many different cocktail combinations you can do with fresh grapefruit juice you know it's amazing but you know back back to the lime thing you know it's funny i think my guess is that people started chewing on lime wedges with tequila was to mask the flavor of inferior tequila, you know, if they're no if they're doubt, a, you know, no doubt, a nine dollar yeah. bottle of some rock gut they got at the uh, CVS pharmacy, then a lime's going to go great. But you know, it kind of brings up the point of like, what kind of, you know, what what quality spirits are you using for right. your cocktails, right? You know, and and a lot of people come from the thought process of, well, if you're mixing a variety of different things, then you don't need you know, quality ingredients. And look, I think there's a little bit of truth to that depending on what you're mixing together. But I would counter that with no matter what you're mixing together, you know, in, in a cocktail or even with food, you know the, the, the better quality ingredients that you're using, the better the outcome or the result is going to be of what you're experiencing, right? And so, like I use, I, I like to use high quality stuff. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't drive a Rolls or a Bentley. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm not using Louis the 13 and, uh, and make a sidecar with it. 
you know, right. I love cognac. And if I had a bottle of Louis, I'd drink it straight. Now, if you had that kind of cheddar to, to roll with a, a bottle of Louis 13 and make a sidecar with, look, it's going to be a delicious damn sidecar. And I fully endorse using high end quality spirits for the base of a cocktail. But, you know, to a degree, you, do, you know, if you, if you had a, uh, you know, a, Fifty to a hundred dollar bottle of say mezcal or something, that's that's perfectly acceptable, you know. I think but, uh, going back to the uh, El Abuelo right. uh, about a month ago or so, I told you that I was gonna. My, I had this stupid idea to keep riffing on El Abuelo, and I was gonna infuse toasted coconut and orange right. peel right. into in añejo mezcal, which an añejo mezcal is has been aged in oak barrels for a year and it, it you know it, it mellows it out it's very very tasty and that's brad johnson friends and neighbors that's it for this episode this is jack Sonny, your host saying thanks for listening stay safe be kind and always remember hug them while you can see you next time